Hello and welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players by trumpet players and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoneman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell and Brian Appleby-Weinberg. This inaugural edition of The Open Bell is brought to you by our good friends at Picket Brass, saving intonation and tone quality one backboard at a time. That's www.picketbrass.com to save yourself, your relationships, and your career. You call that a career? And by Burp Bio Oil, our new synthetic friend that can make even Brian's valves more quiet. And it's vegan. That's Burp Bio Oil. Just go to burp.com to help your valves and animals everywhere. Since this is our first production, a little about the show. We essentially have three segments, warming up, couple things, and no offense. We'll use these segments to cover information that Joey, Brian, and I think is important. It may not really be important, and to be honest, it probably isn't, but we think it is, and that's all that really matters. If you don't think it's important and you have better ideas, start your own podcast. Clearly, there are no rules governing this kind of thing, which is why we're able to be here today. What all this really means is that I'll do my best to contain Joey, and collectively, we can and will consider it a victory if Brian says anything at all. Gentlemen, shall we? This is a segment we call Warming Up, and it gives us a chance to ease into the show by talking about some things that are on our radar. Brian, what have you got for us today? Okay, so the first thing that's on my radar because it's a current topic for everybody is um, what's going to happen when we try to reopen in the fall. Um, and so there are a lot of discussions going on at my school, Rowan University. Um, is that in Jersey? Isn't there supposed to be a ding involved there? Ding. And, uh, There's no dinging in Jersey. No dinging no, in Jersey. Rowan's not going to ever get a ding <laughs> right. on this show. Exactly. When, your colors are, when one of your colors is brown, there is no ding. You're the UPS of college universities. That's right. And giving the finger to FedEx. FedEx, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's, it's what kind of program we're going to offer in the fall. So we're looking at a bunch of different scenarios. Is it all online? Is everything online? Are lessons online? All classroom, onla- all classroom experiences online? Ensemble rehearsals online? Are we going to have some sort of hybrid where students come to campus probably signing a waiver, right, in case they get sick, um, and whether they um, are in dorms, and we offer some sort of space for them to do lessons in, also online, or whether we're teaching in our studios and students are in practice rooms with their tech set up, whether we can take over classrooms and have that social distancing, so some sort of hybrid there, um, and uh, or if we're back full-time and what that all looks like and how we make that that all work. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating exercise, I guess. Um, but it's certainly on, on, in my mind about how we're going to deal with students and their technology. It's the, the biggest impediment for me is the lack of technology that the students have. You know, the tuba professor, professor reports that the tuba teacher, the tuba students playing into their phone doesn't really work. Yeah, we're yeah. I'll give you this, Brian. You don't see much, but when you do, it's really depressing. So thanks. <laughs> and actually, this thing, I just saw this uh, this morning on the news. You know, California, state of California is already calling in for the yep. fall. They're already mentioning that they're probably not going to start on campus. Right. Well, here in Indiana, the uh, 
President Purdue basically told his group in an open letter they're definitely coming back in the fall, which seems a little uh, overconfident. We're looking at here at IU five different scenarios right now around the uh, school about what could possibly happen from fully open to fully online. Uh, and so there are all kinds of committees doing all kinds of work. And even within the School of Music, we're talking about what could it look like, what can go online easily, what can't go online, what can't go online at all. And I don't even know if there's consensus among the private lesson teachers because teaching trumpet in a nice big studio, we have some, uh, our studio building's great. You guys have been in my room. It's a nice big room. If I were on one side and the students are coming on the other side, that could work, but I don't know that that works for percussion. You know, I don't know that that works, you know, for, you know, organ, if there are enough organs in, in our practice rooms, you know, how do we keep those safe for our students? You know, these are the things that we're talking about now. Like our school year ended last week and we're still going uh, very full speed trying to figure all these things out as best we can. And in Pennsylvania, those guys you can, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I say in, in Pennsylvania, it's really up to what the governor decides, and he's got these varying levels of, you know, uh, accessibility or safety, basically. And we're just waiting to to determine what he says before we make a plan. But we've got several scenarios in place too. So even if you're not a state school, you guys are still going to go along with that. Yeah, what do yeah, those Catholic absolutely. schools do with this? The Catholic schools are different, right? Does the Pope have to tell you what to do? Well, at Messiah, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> Which, by the way, not a Catholic school. Thank you, Joey. That might be the best thing that comes out of this is me setting the record straight. We all know it's a Catholic school. <laughs> nice work. Uh, so, we're, yeah, we're waiting for we're, we're going to fall under the same uh, the same protocol that everyone else does in the state and wait for it. So, yeah, Brian, thanks for kicking us off with such a positive. Yeah, positive. super positive ideas. He's a ray of sunshine. <laughs> That's great. Joey, what's on your radar? What do you got? Here's what struck me. I mean, we've talked about a lot of these things, including the whole committee teaching going on. And I see that Billy Hunter, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera, who, if I remember right, was in the position at the University of Texas maybe a year or two ago for part of a semester, and then was saying going back full-time to the Met, they announced this week he's joining University of Texas in this fall as the, the trumpet professor. And uh, Congratulations so on the new gig, Billy. Yeah, nice job. I don't know Billy. I, I don't know Billy at all, but it just struck me as – uh, two things, one odd, just an odd thing, and I want to find out what's going on because I'm nosy and I just want to know. But then two, they're one of the schools that went to that committee model of bringing in people from all over the place with maybe one person taking care of, you know, Northwestern's done this, Peabody's done it, uh, Texas done it. It seems like there's uh, at least one, DePaul, I think they're doing it as well. You know, having three or four well-known professionals come in and teach their students and uh, – and now I'm wondering, was it, and this is just completely making up stuff, which is why we're here, of course. was Texas bringing all these guys in, trying them out, saying who wants to gig, trying to lure people into the one job? Or were they honestly committing to an actual committee of trumpet teaching? Because I don't know. I'm, I'm not sold on the committee of trumpet teachers, especially for undergrads. Yeah, I, it's a, such a different model, I think. Uh, and that, that's what I've tried to weigh out. Like, do I, am I not wild about it because it's just different from what I know or different from what I came up in? But it's an entirely different approach than what we do by bringing the students in, building connections with them. The optics, you know, from the outside, if you're a, if you're a young student and you're going to get to go somewhere and study with three or four principal players, I'm sure that looks great. But, you know, it is a very different from model from what we're used to. Right, and if you're an undergrad, Part of the thing is you're working stuff out, and you want to have, you want to, one, build that connection with a teacher. 
and I think there is something to that, not just because we did it and everybody has to do it, but there's a real relationship there and that person has my best interests. But not just that, if you have three people, what if they're giving you different information? You know, I, you know we, all, we all can agree on what the big picture stuff is, but how to get there is often a different road. So if you're meeting three or four different players over the course of the semester and they're giving you three or four slightly different paths, especially for a younger student, I have serious concerns about whether that works. Now, for some grad students or players who are really already well on their way, getting those kind of coachings from that level of the player, I can see as being a great setup and that could be really beneficial. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it could be ideal for grad students. Although even at that particular stage, I look back at my own education and think about the guidance that I got professionally and personally along the way, you know, on the career path. And, uh, and again, I, it's outside in, so I don't know the kind of access and, and uh, kind of relationships that they have there, but it is very different. There's no doubt. And I don't know that any of them have been in place long enough for us to see any long-term outcomes from those. It's a fairly new model, right? Right. I can imagine it's really good for um, a fair number of students um, who just sort of naturally stumble into stuff and just need co real solid coaching from people who know. Um, and then for a lot of people, it can just be a complete mess um, with no direction, no week by week checking up um, with consistency. And that could be a real problem for, for some students, but it could be a real boon for lots of others. Right, but there's also the the part where in most of these cases, most of these teachers don't live in the city where this school is. So there's also, from our standpoint, all three of us are in our offices. Students can come by and knock on the door, you know, and say, hey, can I ask you a question? Hey, can I do this? And of course, yeah, you can sure text and you can call. I'm not sure that's exactly the same thing. Yeah, I think that level of accessibility is something that's pretty important. Again, Joey, I agree with you, especially at the undergrad level. No doubt about it. What do you do about adjuncts who are just there one day a week? Is that the same sort of issue i mean at least they're present and consistent throughout the years um, for the students but they're not there every day can't just stop by if you have a question two days after the lesson when you think something makes sense oh i definitely think there's a, th that issue exists for adjuncts but yeah. usually in the previous models to the committee thing those adjuncts are still the only trumpet teacher for that student right. over the course of the semester. So that's still only one place that certain students going to search, not come in next week and say, well, so-and-so said this, and you seem to be saying this, now what do I do? And having no follow-up on either side of that that's available on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And again, maybe, you know, once we have more data on this, you know, the longer it, the longer it goes, maybe it'll turn out to be okay. But like I, I think you just said, Brian, you know, with adjuncts, typically they're there through the course of someone's education. Right. You know, so uh, I think that's where the difference lies. All right, I'd like to wrap up this segment. I got one topic I want to throw out. I've been talking to so many people, uh, music educators, reaching out about, you know, what they're doing during this time. And it's kind of got me thinking about an older topic in my brain, which is starting kids on cornet. Brian, I knew you were going to love this. But I'm I can't believe you're the one bringing this up. I know. The me three either. of us. What are the chances? But I think there's such great value to it, and not just the fact that the instrument fits, you know, when the kids are younger and all that kind of stuff. But I think just instilling that cornet sound in their mind when they're younger helps kind of keep things refined and moving in the right direction as they go. What do you, what do you guys think about that? I could not agree more. <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody should be starting on the cornet. But you Ask don't think they should ever stop. Person. Well, that's true too. <laughs> no, that's where we will part ways. No. <laughs> All right. So let me, let me ask the hard question. Let's, uh, I can understand the size part, especially for kids start in fourth grade. 
where I grew up, I grew up in Texas, where most people start in sixth grade. So I don't think starting on trumpet is physically an, as different. So you bring up the cornet sound. So then how do we make sure, and when do we make the switch, and how do we make sure that they, they don't just uh, uh, lose those things that we think the trumpet does have to offer? When do they get those? I think they make the switch in middle school. I think sometime, especially around the end of that middle school time, so that by the time they get to high school and they start marching band and all that, they're, they're acclimated to the trumpet. They've been playing it maybe a year and maybe maybe kind of going back and forth. So you think uh, a year is enough time to make that switch going into high school? Yeah, I do. I think, And I think the value of, of playing the cornet from, let's say, fourth or fifth grade, whatever it happens to be, up through eighth grade is enough that's enough influence that will stick as they move forward. So I guess, okay, let's jump to the practical if we've got a minute here, right? Yeah, sure. So It's our show. We have as much time as we want. <laughs> hey, and it's just the know, three of us listening. So We're going to really... have to let the, uh, let the uh, local affiliates know we might run a little long tonight. <laughs> so, so then it turns into the practical of, so our kids are going to be expected to buy a cornet, and then four years later, three years later, buy a trumpet. That turns into... You know, that turns into some, some serious cash right off the bat. It does, unless the school's commitment is to do it, well, you know, the right way and supply the cornets early on, right? Or, I mean, look at most schools are dealing with, uh, you're working with a local dealer who does the, a, a lease kind of program. So maybe they lease the cornet for a period of time and then, they, and then they switch and go to the trumpet and they've got an inventory of cornets that they can use. That's a good idea, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think definitely you work it out with your local dealer. You can make that make that happen. I would say that at least two years on the cornet before switching. So maybe fourth and fifth grade, or fifth and sixth grade, and then start where I'm starting, starting the switch. Sixth and seventh, you know, the, a lot of places where I am now too. The, the kids start here in sixth grade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, are we all agreeing that starting on the cornet could be a distinct advantage? And we may not agree on how long they play it. Well, at least the majority of us. Joey is—he didn't know what to say. Did you? I'm, I'm, <laughs> that was a hesitation easy. there. That That's was weird. There's a definite hesitation, as you know. Uh, I, I think we're all a product of where we grew up, and of course, you know, I grew up starting in sixth, not in fourth, and I grew up starting on trumpet. And I think, well, I mean, that did work for me. That doesn't mean it has to work for everybody. So I'm thinking, what you're saying—the distinct advantage you're going for—is is more sound based than anything. Absolutely, else. anything else. Is yep. the kids aren't going to be having that hammery sixth grade trumpet sound because you just can't do that on cornet it's hard right. to be super blatty on cornet when you're a fifth grader it is <laughs> and 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 i think that that concept of sound once instilled will carry them through and be advantageous as they transition to trumpet and move through high school so you think if i can sum this up that should we make this large-scale switch start everyone on cornet instead mm -hmm. of trumpet we can eliminate the trumpet hammerhead problem we're never going to eliminate it. I don't think it's a bigger I think, problem. I think mitigate mitigates probably a better word. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to fix all the woes, you know, and and then there are of course there are negatives that go along with it. The the social pressure on a kid to be identified as a cornet player. Brian, nobody wants that. Maybe you could talk about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no one wants that. It's a complete shift. Um, but no, it's just been on my mind for some time and thinking about the issues that teachers face. I just feel like starting out that way could have a, have a really positive impact. So good. I'm glad we got to that and I'm glad we can all agree. We actually all agreed. That's fantastic. <laughs>
First time uh, but for now everything. there is that. But now to the heart of the matter, the focal point of today's show. Uh, this is a, a segment we call "Couple Things." Uh, as many around the country are still under quarantine and the academic year comes to a close, the primary concern seems to be motivation and continuing towards one's goals amidst challenging circumstances. To that degree, today's focus is, what does it really take to be a pro? Joey, what do you have for us on the topic of moving forward to attain our goals no matter the circumstances? I start every year uh, with a master Wait, you're class. supposed to say a couple things. Sorry. <laughs> a couple things. I start every year with a master class uh, at IU for all of the trumpet players. We share a Monday night master class for all three studios, and I tell them this. Your teachers here, uh, me and John, and now Kevin, um, we're in a club. We're, we're called professional trumpet players, and we're actively looking for more members. We were, we're working hard. We want you to join this club, but we can't put you in the club. We can give you everything we can. We're going to work very hard and give you every ounce of information and help and direction that we have to get you to join that club, but only you can do it. Because I think, I, and I tell the students this, if you think about where you were leaving eighth grade as a trumpet player, I think most of us think, you know, that end up being professionals. We look back and it's easy to look back and think, oh my God, I can't believe I sounded that way and people thought we're encouraging and nice. But I think most of us were probably good middle school trumpet players. You know, I was a good eighth grade trumpet player, so... I came into high school, and then by the time you leave high school, if you're looking to go into music, you should be a good high school player ready to make that next leap, and that's a big leap between the end of 8th grade and the end of 12th grade, and I tell them, now you've got to do that again to even have a shot at being in the professional ranks. So I think some uh, it's easy for, for students, kids, or people who don't end up going into music to just look at professional musicians and think, well, yeah, they were just born that way. And it's never the case, never, ever the case. There is no one that was born playing the trumpet at a professional level. Nobody picked up the horn in sixth grade and sounded like a pro. Now, some people may sound pretty good or pretty good for a sixth grader or, wow, that kid's progressing pretty quickly. But nobody sounded like a pro when they're 10 years old. It just doesn't happen. So it's always a result of doing the work. And that work can take a lot of different forms. But getting over that hump and keeping going, it has to come from the individual work and there just is no substitute for that and I think a lot of times what we see uh, online and from people who either are looking for another way or looking for an excuse why it didn't work for them is they're looking saying well I just wasn't born with it where really they're just not doing the work I've been watching have you guys been watching the uh, last dance the Bulls documentary you no, seen no. any of these yet? You got to watch them. It's fantastic, and not just become a basketball junkie. One of the episodes starts with Jordan in front of a camera, with and I'm paraphrasing here, saying, "Most people say they want to be Michael Jordan, and maybe they'd like to do that for a day, but I don't know if you'd want to do it for a week or a month or a year." Precisely, and I thought this is a professional musician thing: is that you see what happens on stage, and think, "Wow, that must be so great," and they don't see, you know, that I'm in my office every morning at 7 a.m playing long tones and then when I'm on the road I'm sitting you know in a hotel room playing long tones in a practice mute with ESPN turned up so I don't bother the person next to me they're not seeing the working out of all of those skills that has to happen to get uh, to a professional level and that's only half of it 
because then you have to be somebody people want to work with. And without those two things, no shot. And that all, all of that just gets you a chance at being in, that, in, the, in the leagues. I just want to go back to something you said, which was that you were a pretty good, pretty good eighth grade trumpet player, and I, I think you still are. And I, I just wanted to put that. <laughs> I appreciate that on the record. We we can all agree on that. I think. We can again. That's two today that we can agree on. Um, yeah. What's fascinating to me in all this again, and and you brought this up as well, is the motivation issue. I think here it is, right? So there's no gig to get ready for. There's no concert to get ready for. Or at least you don't know when the next thing is. But but ultimately, it's not about that, right? I mean. If you choose to pursue this thing as a professional, that motivation has to be from the inside. You just have to want to do this every day and want to get better at it every day so you're ready for whatever may come along. Um, I was talking to someone about a week ago about this, and I said, for me, the time with the trumpet isn't something that I have to do because I have a thing to get ready for. It's my time of the day that I love. It's sanctuary to me. So that's my time to kind of hide out with the horn and know that I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to and that I love to do to make this thing better. I don't think anybody ever put pressure on me to practice. Um, and from when I started in fifth grade, and I think it's important that students realize that, that the motivation is internal and it becomes habitual. You, you sort of feel weird in the afternoon if you hadn't, haven't played yet. Um, and I know by, by 10 o'clock in the morning, if I haven't, if I haven't played, it's a very strange day. Um, I have a heart procedure coming up. I have to take three days off after the procedure, not allowed to play trumpet at all. Mm. And wait, you didn't uh, tell us that three days, three, three days. days. Yeah. And I was looking back hey, and trying to think of how important is that procedure? <laughs> if I want to be able to function, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's important, heart, right? Yeah. Come on, Brian. But what I was thinking was when was the last time I took three days off? maybe when I was in my junior year of high school before I decided I was going to go into music. Okay. Maybe. This, can, can I take us off as just a second? Um, I have noticed online as I like, as you guys know, I like to scour online for all things trumpet, yes. the hashtag hundred days of practice. Now I can understand this as a concept for, Hey, we're going to hold, I'm going to hold myself accountable. But when I see high level professionals doing this, and I like the idea of professionals doing this as, hey, I'm going to give something back for the kids. But then when they're not, they don't make it through the 100 days. Shouldn't that be an expectation? Didn't everybody Does it say 100 days of consecutive days of practice? Oh. Is, that, is that implied in the title? I Counselor. thought so. Yeah. I, maybe we need to go back and read the contract. But I did think that the implication was that I'm going to go 100 whole days in a row. Right? So. Right. I, I'm that seems little... like not a long time to no, go it, in exactly a row. Right. I know That's... people who've practiced 100 days over the last three years. Well, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I think that's what you're talking about. You know, I, I caught a little bit of um, Eric from Picket Brass, who's got a great podcast going, and um, he's been doing some interviews. And I caught a little bit of the one with him and Vince DiMartino the other day. And Vince brought it right back around to the thing I think he always does, which is this daily fundamental core of stuff which the three of us refer to as the thing the thing uh, in credit joey where credit is due the thing um which puts you in a position to be ready for anything that comes along um and the idea that having that and making that the priority despite what's going on around you i think is the real key to this thing yeah i've been watching and we've seen high level professionals our whole lives say variations of things like this well if i have a tough week coming up 
I take it easier on my practice. And if I have a lighter week, then I do a heavier practice. And although I understand the functional concept of that, I think it's a flawed concept because if you keep having, if you had eight hard weeks in a row, that means for eight weeks, you're just going to practice light. Or I've had friends tell me like, well, if I have gigs, then I wouldn't practice nearly so on that day. And I said, well, let's say you get a show and you're playing six nights, five or six nights a week where you have gigs. That means you're not practicing then. And that's just going to eventually, you're going to gradually get weaker and weaker. And, 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 and mm. that's just from the functional side. For, and then we get to the musical side where that means you're not actually growing at all as a musician because you're, all you're doing is keeping yourself afloat to be able to make it through your gig. It's a bad concept. And I want to uh, get that concept out there that I want to be practicing in a way so fundamentally, I'm always pushing that envelope so that my fundamentals are always growing. I don't like the term maintaining, always growing. I'm practicing trying to get better so that when I go play music, I can really concentrate on making that music so I can have both fundamental and musical growth happening perpetually. That's the idea. Yeah. Keith Johnson used to talk about uh, in, our, in our playing constants and variables. So you wanted to make as many things at constant as possible, a regular part of the diet, things that you knew and you could count on would be there because in that way, the variables matter less. It's just whatever comes at you, you're kind of ready for that. Um, and I think doing this, the thing, um, doing this fundamental core fundamental routine, no matter what's going on and not tapering it or modifying or whatever else keeps you in a position to do that. Brian, how does it work on the cornet? I mean, and I'm saying that jokingly, but, you know, the brass band, you, you've had this experience. The brass band playing is strenuous. Yeah. So you, strenuous playing. It's all, you're always on um, when you're in a brass band. You're always under a lot of pressure, and it's always really hard playing. Um, so, I mean, I think all of this time that we have um, gives us individually an opportunity to maybe explore some things that we don't get to um, I keep pushing my technique every day. I'm trying to get better every day, but this having, not having rehearsals, um, you know, I'm out three or four nights a week in really heavy rehearsals um, and not having those gives me a chance during that time in the evening to explore some technique and some, um, some new ways of practicing that I haven't had the chance to get to in a while, which is I think kind of interesting. So it's a chance. Um, I think actually Belk mentioned it um, on our, on our recent tour, um, he, he called it, um, I guess I shouldn't say what he called it, um, but it's a time to just mess around in a day, just a little bit of time um, messing around um, on technique to try and develop a different way of doing it. I think you have to have some of that time built in um, where you let your body and mind sort of explore um, some edges of your technique that could be helpful um, and find some new ways of playing. So I've used that this time to do some of that. Absolutely. I think this gets lost a lot in even really young, dutiful students that they're thinking, well, I have to do what my teacher tells me, and then I have to do what I'm accountable for in band, jazz band, orchestra, brass band, whatever they happen to be doing. And then they think, okay, I've, I've done all of that. Now I'm good. What they're not doing, and this is important, is going, well, what do I want to be doing? Or what do I want to, you know, some screwing around time of just like, well, what do I want to play? I don't think a lot of people pick up the trumpet and think, well, great. Now I can do exactly what everybody else tells me to do. That's not, that's nobody's concept. So, you know, one of the things I was doing when I was 14 years old was playing along with Maynard records. 
I did not think of this as practice in any way. You know, my dad would be golfing on a Saturday. My mom was a nurse and my, my sister's younger, so I could try and boss her around. And so I'd put these on. She goes, oh, God, I'm like, shut up. I'm going to do this. And I'd sit there and try my best to play along with those records. That's in my head. I was just totally screwing around. But part of that was how I figured out how to do some of those things. That was nothing any of my teachers or band directors, none of them were saying, you know what you should be doing? Nobody was telling me that. I just thought this would be really fun and really cool. You want to spend some time just screwing around on the horn? Absolutely. Agree. It's great discovery time. I remember being about the same age thinking, I wonder if I could. You know, I would hear something, hear someone play something on recording, <laughs> and then say, I wonder if I could do that. And then just sound terrible and just try to get through it. But... Um, yeah, but to build that time in is great. I mean, I think what comes out of it, you know, in, in all this, I've had some students who have done well with the quarantine thing and kind of being in this situation. I've had some others absolutely excel because they looked at this time as an opportunity. They didn't have all the demands of whatever it happens to be, ensembles or class time or working on campus or whatever it was, and they just dove into building this time. Uh, for themselves on the horn, and you could just, you heard it get better week after week. Just remarkable. Yeah, the hard yeah. part, though, going forward as to, like, how do you get over being a professional? Because part of that is playing with others, and that's the part we're losing right now. So we've seen all of these things pop up online of uh, collaborations of people all over the place doing distance things. And, you know, I do my own thing here in my house of, I just record all the parts because, you know, I'm crazy that way and I play bass trumpet because everyone should maybe everyone should start on bass trumpet maybe that's something we could all agree on in fourth grade or fifth grade I think let's move it back let's do it like a like violinist if you haven't started playing bass trumpet at two you're just going to be behind well listen the wrong place on the agenda we're going to have to call Robert's rules on you yeah listen why don't why don't we do this instead of recorders in general music bass trumpets this bass is a trumpets. great just this is a great idea class. there's no ergonomic problem go. There's yeah. no ergonomic problem with that. I, I don't I don't foresee any difficulties at all. But there the, the musical problem I think becomes harder uh depending on where you are and how you're going forward. You know, if you're if you're at a, a small school, you might have a lot of opportunities to play in a lot of ensembles. If you're in a larger school, you might really be focusing more and going in there. Uh, but the, the playing with others is an important part of how to get to that next level of being professional as well. That not just not just mastering how to play the instrument, but in, uh, learning how to make music not just by yourself but with other people. Right. In the I meantime, we work on that accountability. Right. All of the things that we bring to the table ourselves. Right. And we have those overarching goals that will ultimately put us in a place to be able to contribute and do that. I do have a question about substituting, um, sort of playing duets in your own basement or with your own setup and rig. Um, and Joey, we've talked the three of us have talked about why you should do it on a different instrument or a different mouthpiece could you elaborate a little bit on that in this context of so like one of the things that i would ask my students to do is to develop a better understanding of pitch and vertical alignment of pitch um, to play a, play a solo line of an arbens duet and then play that back through their ears while they play the accompaniment um, line they'd be using the same instrument and the same mouthpiece. We've had conversations which made me, make me think that you don't agree with doing that that way. I guess in a student standpoint, from a student standpoint, that could be okay. But when you're really looking to make a recording you may want to share with other people, there can be a problem because if you really do 
match that sound uh, exactly. And there are unisons. You're going to get a phasing thing. You're going to get a little weird buzz and a little <laughs> on the recording. And when that happens... Like you Bill's be, recording that we heard. Exactly. Some pops, some Just clicks full, in there. I, I like to leave the naturally occurring stuff in there. I do. It's more <laughs> organic. I'm sorry. Keep going. No. So just the change of a mouthpiece or the change of a horn can help uh, mitigate that problem. So even though you're still matching pitch, matching sound, it doesn't. it's not so exactly the same that it sounds unnatural. So, so if you could maybe record one part on C and then go back and and then play along with that on B flat or flugel in B flat or something, right? That could that could Ab help. Absolutely, absolutely. Got it. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff, all the multi stuff uh, that I've put out there. Um, I mean, I have two B. I have two different B flats I use, and I'll use a different B flat and a different mouthpiece for first and second parts, and then I'll flip them around with the mouthpieces and horns on the third and fourth parts, just so it sounds like a section rather than almost like a synth when you put them together and they have all of the exact same sound it sounds uh almost like a midi synthetic process sound yeah so the the strobe timbre oscilloscope picture looks different for each instrument yeah so it absolutely. sounds better in the result okay cool yeah. i like it and those are the things I, I think those are the things we're talking about that can lead can still advance your your agenda or your project to becoming a pro Right. right. Learning Absolutely. to play along with others doesn't have to be lost during this time. And that major core of stuff, you know, the, your tone, your technique, all of those things that you're working on, um, the major, the majority core of things there has to remain the same and re remain strong. And Joey, what you've done or talked to us about doing your routine is that the way you're adding in jazz, the way you're adding in transposition, styles, all of that. Could you just talk about that for a minute while we're talking about this moving toward that goal? Right. I mean, the idea of the morning of the thing is to hit the fundamentals of playing the horn. So I, as I've done it, it, when I first started, I could do it in about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And then as it grew, both with the number of horns I want to get through, but then with broadening the concepts of what fundamental means. So fundamental can mean, I think there should be, you should just be comfortable transposing no matter what shows up in front of you and in what key. That's just built in, so I can think of that as a fundamental. Sight reading as a fundamental is something you should do every day. Maybe separate from the musical that you're not really thinking about, I'm going to turn this into a great work of art, but I'm going to take one shot and making this sound as great as it can, both technically and musically, and then improvising the same way. That it's, a, that it's just a fundamental of being a musician in a much broader sense. Yeah, that's great. I think absolutely we need to look at setting aside some time to talk about the thing and highlight the thing. I know that might show up on a Shire's uh, broadcast here soon, sometime we hope maybe, but maybe we can scoop it and, and do it here first. Um, I, but I love this idea, and maybe the message that comes out of all this, of course, is that you have a vision for what, it, what you want to do in your professional career, and you set those overarching goals, and then you continue to move toward those no matter what the circumstances are, right? Whether you're on vacation, whether you're quarantined, uh, whether you can be around other players or not. There's have a, a heart procedure. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever you might want to make up to avoid practicing. Yeah. Right, and, and, and there's no wrong answer to that. I, I think one of the things that happens when people get to our age, I mean, not Bill's advanced age, but maybe our age. Thank you. Is that they think, uh, they tell younger players, hey, listen, what I did isn't available, so you guys can't do anything. Everything's terrible. 
you know, I, I know when I was in college, we were hearing that there were just no gigs left there and there was nothing to be doing. So guess what? I didn't do it. My teachers did. And my students aren't doing what I did. That's fine. The music business is ever evolving. So the idea what you said of having those goals of what you want to do, they don't have to be the same kind of concrete goal of I want to be principal in a major symphony orchestra or I want to be first trumpet in the Marine Band. They don't have to be that. Those, and those are great goals. You can certainly have those. But the idea of, you know, if somebody had said, I want to be out playing national tours, you know, 25 years ago of Broadway shows, we'd look and say, what are you talking about? They just pull right. into town and pick people up where that whole business model has changed. And it's always changing. So the idea of figuring out what you want to do on the trumpet is a good one. And there's no real wrong answer because if it hasn't been done yet, that just means that somebody else is going to figure out how to do it. And that could be you. Right. The one thing that hasn't changed is that excellence is always appreciated, right? So there's very little work for, what, what does Sal always say? Uh, the, the market for split notes is very small. I did see John Faddis in a masterclass my freshman year of college. He was spectacular. Somebody asked him, hey, we're here and there are no gigs and like, you know, we're never going to be able to do anything. And he, he's, other people have said this. He's just the first one I heard say it. He looked out of the room very calmly said, I don't know. There's always room at the top. And he's right. That's right. Yeah. Keith, Keith would say the same thing. Plenty of room at the top. Really crowded in the middle. Really crowded in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> the bottom is jam-packed. Jam-packed. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think, you know, maybe, maybe a better way to think about it is the overarching goal needs to be the best comprehensive musician and trumpet player you can be, right? Which is going to prepare you to do many or any of those things. Right. If you look around in any in any area with any population density at all, and if you're one of the you know one of the top trumpet players and musicians there, and you're not working, there's a there's a, another problem to be talked about there. But right. it's very likely at that point, unless you're just a gigantic pain in the butt, you're fairly busy. Right. Yeah. Great discussion. Uh, listen, I'd like to move on to our last segment. If you guys are okay with that. Um, and this is a segment we call No Offense. So finally, we reach the portion of the program linked called No Offense. This is where we highlight something from the trumpet kingdom that is recognized, used, and touted, yet might not make so much sense pedagogically to us. We feel it is our responsibility, no, our duty, to highlight such things to raise awareness, inform the masses, and generally start trouble. Today's lucky topic, breathing bags. No offense, I don't own one. Never have, never will. I've been breathing just fine all these years without one, and actually I started breathing before I even started playing the trumpet. So, for all the things on which I might spend money to help me along my way as a player, a breathing bag isn't one of them. No offense. Brian? Boy, that's really going to make Hefty mad at us. They're one of our major sponsors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not that hard. Take a breath and blow. I mean, and also, you know, why is it so difficult for you? You know, we're not uh, trying to run a marathon at, at Estes Park, Colorado at 8,000 feet. Joey, I know you love the breathing bag. How many do you own? And are any of them pink? <laughs> well, that's the problem. Uh, my real problem here is there are no pink uh, breathing bags. But I've said this many times in clinics and master classes. Breathing is so easy, babies do it in their sleep. This is not something that's hard. So when we look at these kinds of things, like a breathing bag of, 
is it really that hard to just breathe in and blow out? I think trumpet players, maybe not just trumpet players, but trumpet players who we're talking about today really go out of their way to try and make everything harder and a mystery. So, you know, how many times have we heard in, in a master class like, hey, it's just, it's just more air. You just need more air. It's more air. Right. If you look inside your mouthpiece, every trumpet player listening, I want you to go get your mouthpiece. I want you to look it down into the All five of them. And look into the, any of them. Look at the <laughs> hole in that mouthpiece and think, how much air can really go through that at any one time? Just not a whole lot. And breathing is really a very simple concept. In with the good air, out with the bad. Done. So the idea that we have to invent something to teach us something that we've been doing since we were born is just crazy. It's just not that hard. Now, for those people who are going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, and they're saying it works for me, it works for me. <clears throat> you, can, you can certainly make a case, you know, the idea that, you know, well, I've got this rubber band and it keeps the armadillos away from my house. And they're saying, well, what are you talking about? There are no armadillos here. I'm like, right, because that rubber band works. So you can certainly use a breathing bag and then say, well, see, it works. And I'm not sure that I'm buying that argument as well. You know, I, I mean, we've been teaching a long time, and I think all of us have taught pretty much all ages as well. I just, I've seen students that lock up, and, and we want to get away from the stopping the air. The, <gasps> you know, we want to get away from that. But I'm not sure breathing bags fix that problem either. Yeah, what's the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of breathing bags? I think it is. Yeah. Uh, so, look, it's. I think it's like most things, right? There, you have to have an awareness of it and how the mechanism works, but it needs to be the, the most natural way to go about it as possible. And I just don't think about over-inflating to that degree is going to, you know, get the best result. So, my gosh, we, we've agreed again on something. This is super weird. We're going to have to change the format. Yeah, I don't like it at all. <laughs> Not at all. Well, listen, that about does it for today. Thanks for joining us on this inaugural edition of The Open Bell. We've got good news and bad news. This is not the only episode planned for this series. Stay tuned, subscribe, or whatever works for you. We appreciate your patronage, and so do our sponsors who have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. They literally have no idea. So long for now. Remember to keep an open mind, but more importantly, an open bell. That about does it for today. Thanks for joining us on this inaugural edition of The Open Bell. We've got good news and bad news. This is not our only episode planned for this series. Stay tuned, subscribed, or whatever works for you. We appreciate your patronage, and so do our sponsors who have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. They literally have no idea. Today's broadcast is not intended as professional, financial, or legal advice. Void where prohibited. Batteries not included. Must be present to win. Not responsible for personal items left in car. Any reproduction of this event without the consent of Major League Baseball is strictly prohibited. Any resemblance of any person living dead or Trump and Moody is entirely coincidental. Actual retail price may vary. See dealer for details. Product void in the UK. No offense, Brian. Repeated use of Clark 7 has been known to cause birth defects in laboratory animals. If rash develops, discontinue use. Do not try this at home. Professional driver on closed course. Use only as directed. Offer void in New Mexico.